Welcome to the 17th episode of the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast. Today, we are joined by John Fowler of the rapidly growing media franchise, International Intrigue. Hailing from Australia, John's path to where he is today has been anything but standard. John began his career as a lawyer after graduating university, working with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. But after admittedly becoming disillusioned with that path, he leveraged his legal learnings as a diplomat for the Australian Foreign Service, working on maritime law. His career has taken him all over the world from Australia to China. And now John has pivoted again, having just finished his MBA in London. John's experiences have given him an incredible perspective on all things geopolitics and global affairs. And this has culminated somewhat recently in the launch of his Substack newsletter, International Intrigue, which he co-founded with Helen Zhang. We can't wait to talk about that with him today, uh, but without further ado, welcome John to the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to chat. So I did a pretty, I tried at least to uh, pack your career into a couple minute introduction, <laughs> but we were wondering if you could potentially go into a bit more detail about your path, how you got here um, and how you got the international intrigue. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I sort of, it's, I get asked this question a little bit and it's kind of hard to sort of draw a nice line through my career. It's easier looking backwards anyway. I can't, I don't really remember sort of, you know, planning all of this kind of stuff out in advance when I was young, but um, I guess, I guess, uh, yeah. So I, I studied law um, because it was one of those things that, you know, when you're interested in the world and thinking and how to sort of make sense of the world around you, it's a, it's a good degree, but um, I sort of found myself two years into being a commercial lawyer and was like, Oh my God, how did I, how did I end up here? This is horrible. <laughs> um, and becoming a diplomat was always a, a, a dream of mine. So, you know, I managed to, I managed to get into the Australian foreign service and into the international law division there, um, working on, as you, as you mentioned, a lot of um, maritime law, uh, Australia, Australia ended up taking Japan to the uh, international court of justice over a whaling dispute in uh, 2014, which I was involved in. So that, that was pretty fun. Um, and then got posted to China uh, and spent four years in, in Beijing and Shanghai working on all kinds of different issues, primarily political and economic, um, which, was, which was a wild time. It was, um, it was kind of a very strange time to be there because it was right around when Xi Jinping was kind of consolidating power and, and, uh, and sort of making sure that he had, had, had a really tight reins on power in China. Um, so by the time I left, it was a very different China to the time I arrived. Uh, and then I'm in London now doing an MBA. So I think, I think that was because I got a little bit disillusioned with the whole world of government and bureaucracy uh, and, um, and the effect you can have in it. So, so uh, yeah, I ended up kind of leaving that behind to do different things. When you went in to do that MBA, was your idea to start something like international intrigue or is that something that during your MBA this idea came to you and then you started to work on it? A little bit of both. Um, it's, it's again, it's, there's no neat, there's no neat answer to that question. A, a little bit of both. So I think, I think I knew that I wanted to do something far more um, independent and small and kind of um, where you have more control over the outcomes. Uh, I didn't know what that looked like. Uh, so one of the obvious kind of, uh, ways to do that was I oh, will go to business school, get a sense of how to do it, um, and see what happens. So I don't know if it was an explicit kind of way to, to approach it, but yeah. 
And I'm um, curious, like when you do your analysis uh, on international intrigue, how much does the work that you did as a diplomat affect that analysis? And how much of that are you actually doing different from what you did um, in the Foreign Service, given your disillusionment with government? Or is that sort of unrelated to the analytical techniques used within the Foreign Service? I'm going to get in trouble saying I'm so disillusioned with government. <laughs> They're always listening. Um, I, you know, I think in a way I learned everything I know about geopolitics from being a diplomat. Um, I think that's natural, but I'm also trying pretty actively to forget it, if that makes sense. Uh, I think the disillusionment comes from just the kind of stale and uninnovative way that we approach these matters. I mean, I think you can see a lot of that in, in the tropes that are going, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but the tropes that we're, that we're sort of running out now about China and America and rising powers and Cold War and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really the people who are in charge of that came of age in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Um, and they learned a, a completely different world, right? A pre-internet world, a, a pre-you know globalized traveling, all that kind of world. So while I learned a lot of the basic techniques, I think I'm trying to really try and forget them to sort of see the world with fresh eyes. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. no, it seems like this out of the box thinking or this desire for more out of the box thinking in the world of geopolitics is part of what led you to starting international intrigue. Um, can you speak a bit about more, you know, just what were the initial goals of, of that newsletter on Substack and, um, you know, how did Helen come into the picture? Yeah, uh, so Helen, Helen's an old friend of mine. She was in the Australian Foreign Service as well, um, and she did a posting in Tel Aviv um, around the same time that I did. I guess it was 2015, 16. We were, we were posted um, to, our, to China and to Israel, respectively. Um, and it was sort of summer in the first year of my MBA. I had joined a small startup with a friend who's now killing it out in San Francisco, just raised a bunch of money, so... Well, I'm wondering if that was the best decision to kind of go and do my own thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, so and we and we it was summertime. I was I was holidaying in in uh, in the US, and you know what it was? I, I came across a podcast with um, I, I can't remember what it, it, if it was. It's Patrick Collison, right? One of the founders of Stripe, mm. and he was he was interviewed about how when he when he was hiring people for Stripe in the early days, he just wouldn't hire people who didn't have a public record of how they think. So a blog, a Twitter account, or just something that showed that was a, that was a public record of people engaging with issues so that he could say, well, you're a less risky hire for me because I don't care if you're wrong. I don't care if you're, you know, saying things that I don't agree with. It's just like, I want to know how you think. And that I must say, like, I mean, I don't really believe in turning points so much, but if, if there is one, it would be that because I was like, yeah, wh why aren't I writing? Why aren't I putting my thoughts out into the open? I mean, I don't know the answers to everything, but why am I so hesitant to be wrong? Um, and, you know, that's a whole different conversation, but I think the environment of diplomacy and law is one of you have no value unless you're completely correct all the time. Um, and so that, and I guess, yeah, the summer, the summer kind of epiphany was like, just start writing. So I, I had a conversation with Helen and she was, she's just moved to the US to do, or she had just moved to the US at that point to do her MPA at Harvard. Um, I was like, well, do you just want to start writing a, a newsletter with, you know, two, maybe two stories from around the world and just giving our takes as diplomats on what's happening? And she was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So I guess that's how it was really born is like a, 
a passion project kind of thing. You mentioned that idea of sort of being wrong with your thinking publicly. Um, and let me just say, you know, I am a huge fan of the International Intrigue newsletter. I think you do a, a great job summarizing geopolitics really quickly and in a really engaging and very sort of visual and readable way. And so I think that's great. But do you have a story in which you, uh, in retrospect, that you think your analysis was wrong? Um, and that, you know, how would you, like, sort of what was that event? And what do you think you learned afterwards in terms of what was wrong with your analysis? It's a good question. Um, it's a really good question. I think, actually, if I'm honest, we did a, I mean, I think it's how we came across each other. Right? We did, a, we did a, uh, an edition on super forecasting. Um, and I, if, if I had my time again, I probably would have approached that a little bit differently, not just because I think the questions that we kind of formulated were a bit naive, but I, in my head, was writing about that as kind of like forecasting, geopolitical forecasting is this panacea, like no one's talking about it, but it can tell you the future. Um, and, I, and of course, I mean, I, I, have a, I have an economics degree, so I kind of understand statistics. And I, of course, it's ridiculous to sort of say anyone way of analyzing anything can give you the right answer. So I probably would have gone back and, and I'd probably rewrite that one a little bit. Um, and in terms of big geopolitical issues, I don't, I think, I think we don't take, we don't make, um, we don't take sides. I don't want to say like, that sounds political to say we don't take sides, but I don't think we have uh, kind of an agenda. So it's hard to say you're wrong when you're kind of saying, look, this is what's going on. Um, and, and here's where we think it might go, but it doesn't, we're not really sure, but here are the, here are the forces. Now in three years time, it might be much more clear that we, we totally misread something, but I think it's not like we're saying this person's going to win an election or this person's going to lose an election. So it's hard to reflect on, on things you got wrong, but if I have an, a, a regret, it would probably be the way I, I approach that super forecasting piece a little bit. And then sort of conversely, is there a story that you've covered that was your favorite? Is there one that stands out as, you know, one that you either really enjoyed reading or that spurred a cool connection that's persisted until today, something like that? It's, it's, been, a, it's been a really interesting lesson to sort of watch the statistics and, and, and watch the analytics of what gets read and what gets, you know, what people don't engage with. Um, and by far and away our most popular piece and our most well-read piece was we did a special edition on Israel and Palestine when uh, the war was happening. What was it? A couple of months ago now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, May or yeah. April. Yeah. Um, we were, we were a little bit nervous to write about it because I think our default position is to shy away from super controversial emotional issues. Um, but Helen was a diplomat in Israel. So she had something meaningful to contribute. So we decided to tackle it. Um, yeah. And as I said, it got a lot of engagement, um, a lot of, a lot of dislikes and a lot of likes, but if I reflect on why I think that was a really good piece, I don't have a great background in Israel and Palestine, Middle East. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm interested in it, but I'm not super across it. So when it came to writing my piece, I was like, what do I think about it? And there was no answer. I, I genuinely was like, I don't know. I just, I'm so confused. I think Palestine is obviously, you know, Palestine's obviously kind of suffering a lot. But I also, when I was thinking, I was like, yeah, but you know what? Like I can understand Israelis being pretty upset about rockets. First. I just didn't know. And I, was, and I reflected and I said, you know, if someone who was a diplomat and, and, you know, consumes this stuff for a living and is pretty well read feels this confused, I bet most people feel this confused. So write about that. 
Um, and so I did write about that. And I think a lot of people reacted to that as kind of saying it was nice to see someone or to see a, a, an article or a publication say, look, you kind of have to make your own mind up, but don't feel bad for not knowing and don't let anyone push you into a side that you don't feel comfortable with. And if you don't have a side, that's fine too. So I think that, yeah, I think that's the one I'm most proud of, I would say to this point. I thought it was really interesting that you said going into that, you didn't really know a lot about it or have necessarily like a take about it. And that's something that when doing forecasting, something that Andrew and I and a lot of the forecasters we talk to experience with every sort of question and part of what they like about forecasting is, you know, being able to get up to speed on issues that they otherwise wouldn't really know anything about. And when it comes to forecasting, at least I would say that Andrew and I have developed at least a fairly decent methodology in terms of learning new subjects and sort of getting up to speed to a point where we can, you know, confidently, confidently give out an initial forecast on a question. I was wondering if you sort of have developed your own sort of metrics in terms and sort of methodologies to to get yourself up to speed on complex and new subjects like the like in Israel Palestine. Well, first, I would love to hear about your guys' methodology after after I answer that because I, I I'd be fascinated to learn more about you guys. But um, I am in the fortunate position of um, having a pretty good network of people who do know what they're talking about on any given issues. You know, I, I've got a, a pretty broad diplomatic network, and I and I also have a lot of friends in the State Department and and you know other other foreign services. Um, so my first step often is to figure out who knows in my network knows something about it and you know not not ring them up and ask some questions but just say hey who are your favorite you know writers on this you know I, i'm not after kind of polemics i'm after kind of really good basic backgrounds i'm after um you know important pieces all that kind of stuff how how do i get across it really quickly and most i would say 85 percent of the time um that's the most fruitful way. Uh, we, we wrote about Columbia a couple of weeks ago, and one of our readers is a is the uh, I think the son of like Columbia's most famous sociologist, um, and so he was like, "Oh, here's here's just all this content on understanding inequality in Latin America." It was honestly, it was too much. I I couldn't get through it, but it's like stuff that I would never have found, right? Like I, I don't know how to read that kind of stuff. So that that's my first step, and in terms of metrics. Um, I just, I think I just read quite a lot of stuff, like quite a lot of high quality stuff that is, tends not to be mainstream media. And then I will always, before I start writing a piece, I'll, I'll ring up a friend or someone who I know is kind of conversant in these issues, not necessarily the issue I'm writing about and talk with them and, and sense check what I'm writing. Um, and I guess it's a little bit different from forecasting because I don't always write about what's going to happen or what the issue is. I kind of, sometimes I say, Hey, this angle is, this is the angle I'm taking. Does this make sense to you? Does this point make sense? Does that point make sense? Um, so it's a little bit different, but yeah, I guess that's my process, but I, I would genuinely like to know what your methodology is to get up to speed really quickly to fire off a, a forecast. Like, like you guys do. I mean, I, I would say the, the first part of it is just to sort of understand what the base rate is. So that's in forecasting terms, like how often historically does this happen? So when we were looking at the Israel-Palestine conflict, we looked sort of between 2007 and 2020. Um, how did the conflict play out? What were the instances in which we saw violence similar to this degree? 
and what were the sort of conditions at play that led to those base rate events happening basically what was the difference between you know 2008 and 2012 and 14 versus all the other years in the israel-palestine conflict um, since the withdrawal from gaza and so first sort of getting that very basic just understanding of how often does this normally happen what were those triggers and then viewing the forecasting question as like a list of sort of sub questions so what were the things that would take um, for the forecast to come true? What are the relevant constraints on all of the actors? And then trying to get as quick as possible, whether that's from Wikipedia or from good Twitter sources uh, and from articles in newspapers from the countries that we're actually dealing with, trying to get a sort of basic understanding of all of those forces and you know trying to contextualize it and quantifying it numerically. Um, yeah, that's and, and that's interesting because I guess the difference there is you're internally coming up with a prediction. So you have to satisfy yourself, but you don't have to kind of like write about it in, in the way that we do, which is kind of like then you have to sort of say, explain the logical flows and kind of, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a different process, right? But, yeah. Um, I guess the other, and I'm sorry, I know that it's your podcast, not mine, but how do you do, I mean, the Israel-Palestine one's a great one for history because those those conflicts are just so orchestrated, right? It's like, you can almost set your watch to how they run because it's just a dance. But I am a little bit skeptical that history is specifically useful in kind of forecasting. Like it's very useful in terms of understanding cultures and ideologies and and sort of bigger forces. But in terms of like length of conflict, do you, do you find that actually is helpful or? I think it was helpful in terms of like understanding like relative magnitudes, like being able to put what's happening currently within context. Because, right. you know, during when it was happening, it was, you know, it was being played up as like, here's the next 2008. But if, if you were to look at how both of those conflicts were to evolve and what the relative casualties per day was, it sort of helped put this current conflict um, into perspective and sort of moderated what otherwise our, our views might have been in terms of how it would play out. And so I think it's just best in terms of gaining context in terms of what happened. And, you know, therefore you then have to explain differences. Okay, so the situation is different because of this. Well, now mm -hmm. how might that play out in terms of the forecast? But at least you have a sort of a comparison class to make um, in, in terms of what's happening in the present. It's not sort of unanchored from, from the past. Right. But, and I, but to your point, John, I would say some of the forecasters that we've talked to on the podcast have said that one of the most difficult skills in forecasting is understanding when to use base rates and when to not. And sometimes there will be reference classes, as Clay mentioned, that maybe seem super apt for the forecast that you're making, but actually you're only going to, or actually noise, and they're going to sort of take you away from what you should be focusing on. So sometimes it is a little tricky. Yeah, right. That's a great point. And I, I guess, I guess if you use it as a tool to kind of get yourself out of the daily chatter and the daily cycle and the daily noise, just to get that perspective, it's really useful, but you want to make sure you don't kind of treat it as, as, as like gos it. gospel. Right. It's not a crutch. It's a tool. Exactly. Yeah. Fascinating. And one thing that's interesting is, you know, you said for us sort of converting forecasts um, into something to communicate to others is being difficult. And I would say that's very much true. Uh, the process of forecasting is only a small fraction of what it takes to then convert that quantifying of the situation into into the text that people read at Global Guessing. 
I'm guessing for what you guys do at International Intrigue, it's probably more of the inverse. It's more thinking about yeah. it. And then the actual writing of it is is a, a pretty easy part of the process relative to the rest. Is that? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, exactly. It, it goes from, yeah, you're right. By the time we I sit down to write, it's... um. It's not that I know what I'm going to write because I think the process of writing is is so great for figuring out what you actually think about something. But it, most of the work comes before that 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 part of the process for sure. So I, I know we want to talk about some forecasting, but I'd be curious to talk to you about a little, a little bit about some geopolitics. And I was curious, you know, you being sure. Australian, how has that do you think had an effect on your geopolitical? Um, positions and your analysis i'm gonna guess that you have a very um intricate and more nuanced um analysis when it comes to china given the relative closeness of the two countries as well as the geopolitical tensions especially in recent years between the two um but yeah i'm curious as an australian how do you think that's shaped your geopolitical outlook yeah, that's it's such a good question. It's something I actually don't think I've explicitly considered before, which is a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> um, to your China point, I think you know it, you would think that as an international observer that Australians should really be fascinated by China and interested in it. And I think there's a small portion of the population that is. Um, I think one of the greatest problems with Australian foreign policy and geopolitical thinking is that we have no idea about Asia. Um, I mean, just anecdotally, when I was in Shanghai, a lot of my job was to um, meet with business delegations as they came through looking for opportunities in China. And I, you know, big companies, Australian stock exchange listed companies, we'd be meeting the CEOs and the, and the head of, you know, business development. And they just had, they didn't even have a base level of understanding of, of what China was. You know, they, they would say things like, oh, it's okay, we'll just sue them in the courts. And you'd be like, are, are you kidding me? Like, this is not how business works here. Um, so when you say we, we sort of shouldn't, we're sort of interested in China because of the proximity, yes, but we don't know much about it. Um, and I think that's a legacy of our history. You know, our, our founding myth is kind of uh, World War One when we were fighting with the Brits in Turkey. Um, we are an Anglo, I mean, we're not obviously, because it was, we're an indigenous country, but you know, modern Australia is, is an indigenous, is, is, is an Anglo country. So I think the biggest imp impact of being, an Australian kind of thinking about geopolitics is trying to, um, I guess it's trying to surround yourself with people from backgrounds that are different to yours. Uh, living in China was so incredible on that front. I mean, I met Russians, I met Chinese, I met Mongolians, Koreans, Japanese, and you know, you guys are Americans. I'm Australian. I live in Britain. Ah, we're all roughly the same, right? Like we kind of just get, we speak the same language. We come from such a, a cultural base that, you know, you're a bit different, but I get where you're coming from. Having a conversation with a Russian about geopolitics is there's nothing, there's no starting ground. Um, and so I think, I think being an Australian uh, is means that you're in Asia, you're in a part of the world that we don't understand. We have nothing in common with, um, and it informs the way I think about geopolitics because I'm so conscious that I need to get outside my 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 sort of comfort zone to understand our area. What do you think the ramifications are of that lack of knowledge? Ah, uh, that's a, I mean, who knows? I think one of the biggest ramifications of it at the moment is a seriously unnuanced conversation in Australia about how to respond to China's aggression. Um, 
I said it, we said it at the start of the podcast where it's, um, it's old Cold War tropes, right? It's like we have to resist them because they're, you know, communists, um, which is, you know, I don't agree with the Communist Party of China, but it, it is certainly not a Soviet Union kind of, of battle anymore. Um, but even more nuanced than that, like we have, a, we have a country of 250 million Muslims that you can walk to, pretty much walk to at low tide from the top of Australia. And Bahasa Indonesia, uh, Indonesian is one of the easiest languages to learn in the world. You know, it takes like, I think, I think, I think they give it close to English. Yeah. And I think, I think when, when diplomats do foreign language service, I think it's like three months and you're fluent or something like that. And, and no Australian speaks it. So I, I, I mean, I, I'm really worried about the next, no, worried isn't the right word. I am, I think that we could get up to speed quickly, but right now, as it stands, Australia is not particularly well positioned to navigate the Asian century, which the 21st century is really. Um, we're not particularly well nav- uh, suited to navigate it. And that's a shame because we, we really should be. Um, so you just talked about some examples of, you know, people, uh, institutions who maybe you would expect to have certain information or know things and don't. And I'm assuming that phenomenon is what might have spurred some of the consulting work that you've done with international intrigue as well. Um, I was wondering if you have a favorite assignment that you've been staffed on. You can keep it confidential, of course, um, the actual party that you know employed you, but any projects that have been particularly interesting or fascinating for, for you as somebody who you know knows quite a bit about geopolitics. Yeah, so we've only done a little bit um, with with. Um, international intrigue. It's very much a kind of side hustle to sort of keep us interested and to make connections and learn. I mean, I really, I really enjoy it, but it's not sort of a focus. But by far and away, the most interesting was that, um, yeah, I, I can say, I can sort of say this. It was the start of the year when the Xinjiang boycotts were going on over H and M and Nike and and some other companies about cotton. We had a company approach me, um, a friend of a friend, just sort of saying, we're not in this industry per se, but we've got a bit of Chinese exposure. Um, what would this look like if it happened in our industry? And how would we, what, what's the best way to react? Um, and, and I guess the biggest question they had was, what's the likelihood of this happening? Um, so it's obviously a really interesting question because it's you know a crazy kind of situation that we haven't really seen before, You know, the weaponization of social media by a authoritarian government is a, is a new novel problem. But I think something I grapple with a lot, and I guess it's really relevant to forecasting, is there's no, there's no answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. And I had to fight. It was, it was such a difficult kind of job because I had to fight the urge to please the client and say, here's, what's, here's the likelihood, here's what's going to happen, and here's what you do. The answer is, I don't know. No one outside of China knows. Most people inside China don't know. Xi Jinping doesn't really know what's going to happen. So no one can know. And, and that answer is actually really useful because then it says uh, not knowing the answer is not a lack of an answer, right? <laughs> um, you then say, well, okay, then don't make strategic decisions that would wipe you out if it happened. Don't make strategic decisions that over leverage you to a boycott or, a, or anything. Um, but it was an inter- it was a really interesting kind of experience for me just 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 to kind of have <laughs> someone pay you money to say no I'm not really sure. 
It, it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, you would think us as forecasters, we'd be like, well, we could also forecast that. But there are questions that are just too difficult to forecast or just simply like too challenging and, and too complex to build mental or even computer models in order to, to forecast the, the, the outcome. Like, if you were to imagine a world in which you could forecast that question, what would be different? Um, I think the biggest thing would be quality of information about Chinese decision-making. Uh, I think that would be something you would have to have a much better handle of in terms of having some model of how decisions are made, uh, pressure points, some sense of internal politics so you can kind of predict who is going to make what decision. I mean, it's not going to be perfect, but, you know, in America and Australia, you can kind of say, well, you know, this politics, this politician has, this is his base, so he's not going to say X, Y, Z. That people will say they know that in China. Literally no one knows, right? Like I, intelligence agencies, the CIA doesn't have a great sense of that. So no one does. Um, so I think that would be the biggest thing you'd change. But, you know, this, this is the biggest question about forecasting that I wish I'd kind of grappled with a bit more in, in our piece about it, is that I don't know how useful it would be in that situation to come up with a number. Because I think everybody knows it's a possibility. If it's 20 or 40, what does that change when the whole, like it's, there's so much variability. Some people think it's more likely than others. Like the, the, the answer has to be then you cannot put all your eggs in one basket. Um, and I just wonder when, when you don't have a great sense of it, if it's better not to attach a number, because you know, all these biases about people not understanding numbers and not understanding statistics and, you know, Nate Silver and the whole, the whole thing. I just wonder whether if we'd had, if we even tried to forecast it, whether that would have been a better, I don't know the answer, but mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm skeptical. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of progress made in forecasting in terms of, you know, moving sliders and being very precise with your percentages. Um, but that's only to the end of, you know, making an accurate forecast when it comes to taking that next step and turning that forecast into insights that drive business decisions. I think there's still um, a lot of work to be done there. So I think we'll probably see some things change in that respect. I, I think that's right, Andrew. And, and, I, and I'll go a step further than that. And, and I don't mean this in a condescending way at all. I mean, yeah. I am 100% involved in this. I have an economics degree in, in majoring in data science. And I just think people, the audience, it doesn't speak the language of statistics yet. Most people don't understand how to interpret the information you're giving them. So, you know, it's, I, I used to use this analogy when, when I was working in a, in, a, in, a, in a more economic field. And it was kind of like, people have enough understanding of statistics, like you do if you've learned French for three months. It's like enough, enough French to go into a bakery and make an absolute idiot of yourself, but not enough to understand what's going on. And I, and I worry that, that like, if you don't, if you're not talking to someone who really deeply grasps how to interpret this stuff, that you can do more damage than good. But I don't know, maybe yeah. I'm wrong on that. I think for the analyst, what makes it right. So not for the consumer of the intelligence, but for the actual intelligence analyst, whether this is open, private, if it's a blog, let's just say, you know, taking information and the output, I think for the analyst, what makes forecasting useful is that it, it forces a quantifying of the thinking process and yeah. then when it comes in terms of how even for a question right you're saying what's the difference of 20 and 40 uh, in that forecast that might not matter but what that could be useful for is being able to identify signals and 
being able to sort of point out, well, why did it go from 20 to 40? Let's look at that. And perhaps there's actually useful business intelligence or or government intelligence or whatever in in the changing of the forecast, even if the actual output isn't playing a huge goal, using that as an analytical um, structuring process for the analyst and a way to determine sort of important new signals and information as the forecast evolves, I think is where the usefulness can really be sort of larger than just the statistical framing, because that sort of puts knowing the statistics just on the analyst and making sure your analyst knows how stats works. And then for the then for the consumer, it's 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 more so focusing on the outputs. Um, of yeah, my guess. That technique. My guess is that there's also just been like an over rotation, so to speak, or over correction from like the qualitative gut feeling to like super quant heavy analysis. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll probably come back to a place where, as Clay said, you're able to think through these numbers in a more qualitative way, where it's not just numbers on their own and outputs, but the thinking behind it quantified and be able to see the multi layers. But I think, yeah it might take some time to get back to that point and there yeah. was there was there was some post on twitter um which we'll link in the description um which they were looking at sort of rounding forecasts on the website metaculus and what they found is that if you round the probabilities just to like normal betting odds so like one and two like one and three all of those that you didn't lose any sort of precision and so i think you know just picking back on andrew's point about there being too much like over number fine like you know and we're guilty of that too you know we'll sometimes say there's a 97.02 percent right. chance but you know i think we're getting a little bit pedantic and sort of overly specific and what this person was showing is that you can really sort of pull those back and i, I think betting odds is i think a really intuitive way of sort of understanding yes. likelihoods and might be a just a much better communication method for forecasting in the in the future yeah that's that's, I think, a very interesting idea because, you, I mean, that that 97.02 is like that classic specificity bias, right? That you sit there and go, well, well these guys must, be, must know must what they're correct. talking yeah. about. <laughs> exactly. And betting odds are something that, you know, most people can kind of get their their heads around because mm -hmm. they've done it before and they put money behind it. Because so, yeah, anyone difference. can say 95, but who right. would come up with 96.52 yeah. randomly? That can't but, be random. Seriously, yeah. I mean, I, that was the whole Nate Silver thing around Hillary Clinton, right? It was mm -hmm. He was doing kind of prospective forecast to that accuracy of a, of a inherently ridiculously volatile kind of thing. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. That actually gets us into um, a question that we had about forecasting. You know, we just talked, you've worked in a lot of government institutions, you worked in the foreign service. Um, so you might have a good sense of this answer to this. Um, I forget who it was, Claire. I don't know if you remember, but somebody that we talked to um, when it came to thinking through forecasting adoption, said that one of the difficult things might be that you have lower level employees who have better forecasting skills and some of their managers are higher ups. And so it could be disruptive to the um, sort of internal org chart of a company or business. I know you've written about, you know, how disrupting forecasting can be within the geopolitics space. Given your experience, could you see that being a problem? Um, yeah. Uh, yes. I I mean, the short answer is yes. It's a, it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, it's not unique to forecasting though, right? It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, a, it's fundamentally a human organizational problem of bureaucratic. I mean, and I don't mean bureaucratic in the government sense. I mean, bureaucratic in the human organization above a certain size problem right. where you have internal politics that trump uh, good decision-making. Um, my experience in government 
um, and it was just my experience, so I don't want to talk for anyone else, but uh, it is more important to not be wrong than to be good at your job. Um, so, you know, if, 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 a, if a junior analyst is making forecasts uh, and, you, and it goes against what you're saying, it, it, you will have an incentive to kind of put that away, like to put that to the side, not because they're doing a bad job, but because you don't want to look stupid or be wrong in front of people. Because you don't get promoted. Uh, there's this whole problem in government with the profit motive, right? If you, don't, if you can't quantify results and if you can't kind of boil down people's performance to a number or to a metric, how do you measure people's performance? And it is basically just don't be wrong. So you bring forecasting in, which is like measurable, time insensitive in the sense that like you can go back and look at it and it's right there. Um, and that has the potential to make people look very stupid. So I think it, it, it's, um, well, actually, I, I mean, Helen used to work for um, an, our ambassador in Tel Aviv and who's now a, a member of our parliament and I think probably a future Australian foreign minister. And she has experience forecasting because as as ambassador ambassador in tel aviv he ran forecasting competitions within the embassy um mm -hmm. and that was you know that was something that none of us had heard of he was certainly well ahead of his time in doing that so it's not that everyone's like that it's just that i think institutionally there's probably not a lot of incentives to do radical well not, not even radical just new things i would love to hear about his experience running that competition and sort of what was the good and the bad in which that brought out out of out of out of the ministry at that point yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Helen would have a better sense of, of how that went. I mean, I know, I know she, so they ran it over a year and they had, um, I don't know, I, I'm just guessing here. So don't take this as gospel, but let's say 15 to 20 questions around Israel, Palestine, the issues that the embassy kind of was dealing with. Um, and they had everyone in the embassy from the bottom to the absolute top. And I think even potentially, again, don't quote me, but even potentially another, another embassy that kind of joined in as well. Um, and they, they did the kind of proper thing, you know, make forecasts, update them a lot as you go along and kind of keep track. Um, I don't, it wasn't for anything. They wrote cables back to camp, uh, back to capital to sort of like, you know, explain the process and see how it was going. But it, it was very much a kind of like, Hey, this is a new tool kind of thing. Let's, let's learn by doing, which is cool. Mm. Well, speaking about learning about doing that takes us to the final section of the podcast, which is the rapid fire round. In which, I didn't listen to any of these, so I haven't prepared. So I'm a little this bit is nervous. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the instructions as we <laughs> tell all of our guests. It's fine to listen to past podcast episodes. Just skip the last 10, 15 I minutes. Did. I which did. Is great. <laughs> um, so you have the lovely opportunity of forecasting five geopolitical questions um, that we have been asking all guests on the show. So let's just hop right into this. All right. The first question is, what is the likelihood that Russia annexes more territory in Eastern Europe by 2026. Huh. I'm gonna put that at by 2026. And we're talking Eastern Europe is anywhere from sort of, you know, Finland to- Say the former Soviet bloc, you know? Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm gonna put that at, 55%. Okay. In in two sentences, what's 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 the reasoning? I think that Putin would very much like to do it. I think that's certainly something that he would like to do. Germany's going to be weaker after Merkel goes, so he's going to want to test NATO and Europe's strength. I 
but I think that it's going, it will be hard. I don't know where he would annex really more of Ukraine, potentially maybe Estonia, a little bit of like there, but um, it, it would be really hard, but I think his will is there and you never know if he's sick, like people think he might get a bit rash and, and bolshy. That was about 20 um, sentences. <laughs> no, that works. Um, the second question is, what are the odds that we detect um, either past or present signs of alien life by 2030? So this can be single cell organisms, advanced techno signatures. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll talk this one through just briefly so that you kind of get a sense. I, it's not my area of expertise at all. Um, 10 years. I think it's probably something around, it's pretty low. I'm going to say 2%. That's not me saying I don't think it exists. I just think, I mean, the biggest, no, let's say, let's say 5% because it, there's, there's a lot of work going on in Mars right now. There's a lot of experiments going on. A lot of rovers on. and probes right. going, because that's what a lot of the people that have been on the show that have put it higher have been mentioning are those increased yeah. probes. Yeah. So I think, I think let's say five, I still think that's actually probably pretty high to be honest. Um, do I think if in the next cut, if you, it was sort of like within my lifetime, it's, it goes up a lot. Cause I, I, I don't, I have a, I have a relatively based on not a lot, but I just have a sense that we will find, you know, single cell kind of organisms and whatnot, but 10 years. Yeah. I'll, I'll stick with five. All right. Question number three. And as an Australian, you should have some firsthand insight into this question is what is the likelihood that a majority of the five eyes and the quad boycott the 2022 Beijing Olympics? And for listeners, I'm going to try to get this right this week. Uh, these countries are therefore the US, Japan, Australia, India, UK, Canada, um, and New Zealand. Yeah, I think I got them. Yes. Yeah. Yep, I've been struggling yep. the last two podcasts. So nailed it. I, I mean, everyone forgets New Zealand. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Just shots fired at them. Um, I think the chances that a majority of them boycott the Olympics are almost zero. Um, and I think if you, you have to define boycott a little bit more, but a boycott I'm sort of thinking of is like, you know, don't send any athletes there. I think. I've thought about this one a little bit and I think there's a pretty high chance they won't send political representation. They won't kind of acknowledge it in that sort of formal way, but I don't think there's any appetite to deny athletes the chance after COVID to go and do the thing that they've been training for, for so long. What if um, it's athletes, but it's like not an official, right. They do some sort of work around like, you know, how Russia sent their people to the last Olympics when they were, you know, had the dupe, the yeah, like, issue. But that, that was, that was the, that was the IOC banning Russia, right? So yeah, but that same sort of like workaround. Like, so, yeah. say there's like a there's like a diplomatic boycott. That I could see more. So maybe I would put that more at. I mean, the the, the force working against that is that um, I'm pretty sure that China is going to be on its absolute best behavior leading up into it because you 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 can never underestimate how much the Chinese Communist Party cares about how they come across in these kinds of moments. So they won't be doing. I I don't think they'll be doing any kind of stupid things that would raise the tensions between those countries um not intentionally anyway um but if it's that kind of situation let, let's say 10 percent of that but otherwise i think it's much lower and just to follow up on that because we've done a forecast on there's a question on metaculus what's the likelihood that china closes the uyghur camps either by the end of this year or next year do you think there's any likelihood you're saying you know china being on best behavior would they be on proactive behavior um maybe like publicly shutting that down or doing something to 
gain sort like of shutting, shutting them all down, like disbanding the kind of project, or just like or, one or maybe. or you know shutting it down in you know whether or not that I, gets moved or or hidden in yeah. a different way, like a public show yes. of like yeah a, a public show. I can see that it's really unlikely because mm-hmm. again you think about it, China's backed themselves into a corner on that. They've said they don't exist. Um, you know, they've gone to, you know, social media war over it, but I could see them saying something like these are not, these were not bad camps. They were terrorist re-education camps, but now we think the terrorist threat's gone and, you know, we'll, we'll make them a bit different. I could see them doing some sort of like threading the needle of, of, you know, believability on that to kind of get America to come or something like that. But like it's a still 5% high. on that? Lower than that? That that I would put higher than a, a boycott. So I'd put that at like 10 or 15. Okay. Interesting. Still Interesting. not likely though. Yeah. <laughs> um, our penultimate question is, uh, what are the odds that you think Saudi Arabia and Israel normalize diplomatic ties by 2025? Well, that's a hard question um the odds well we just saw this week that saudi and the uae are not friends anymore or for the for the meantime over the oil stuff and the uae is trying to get closer to israel obviously uh by 2025 normalizing as in like diplomats exchanged embassies and that kind of stuff i guess is the definition yeah like the same way that morocco and bahrain and sudan have done so in the past like 12 months with israel's politics the way it is i think that's pretty unlikely too i'll give that um like 2025 yeah i give i give that a give that a 15 percent chance there are interesting dynamics in the middle east at the moment that are kind of in like unpredictable and thawing towards israel but the saudis are pretty pretty hardcore (laughs) I think right. that's pretty close to where our forecast is, by the way. Yeah, do I get to do I get to know how far far off I am the the consensus? <laughs> well, so we haven't forecasted all of these questions. Okay. I think we forecasted the Saudi Israel question, and we'll probably release um, like some averages or some like distribution of the forecast for these questions across all of our podcast guests sometime this year, which would be oh. interesting to see. That would be yeah, very interesting. Those, to yeah. See. Um, yeah. All right, so this is the last question. This is a new question. So you'll be the second guest to forecast this question. What are the odds that there is a flare-up in the South China Sea before 2023 that results in more than 10 deaths from any single country? Flare-up meaning like military conflict, not an accident or something like that. Yeah. Right. But if it's like what happened over Ukraine with that passenger jet where it's an accident. Right. yeah, that, that counts. Count. Okay. Okay, so by 2023, 10 yeah. deaths. Um, it's quite a lot of deaths. That's that's not, yeah, I would put that at, I mean, I think there's going to be a flare up there. The 10 deaths is the thing that's kind of, that's, that's quite a lot of deaths, but I could see that happening. So I'm going to give that a 20% chance. Wow. Uh, if you said one or two deaths, I would have put that at, almost even money because I think there's almost certainly going to be something that goes on there in the next couple of years. Well, great. great. Yeah. We'll have all these forecasts and we, and we do want to aggregate all of them and show them off. So that's something that we should 
you know, push up on our priority list so everyone can see how all of our guests have forecast and be curious to see if there's like a general trend with guests over time too, or if if they kind of stay generally distinct over time. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting. I'd like to see it, see how see how ridiculous I am. <laughs> um, so, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for talking to us for all this great time. Um, it'd be great if you sort of plugged International Entry, gave a sort of short um, explanation of what it is to our viewers and let them know where they can find International Intrigue, where they can find you, and if there's any sort of exciting projects that they can all look forward to and we can look forward to uh, in the near future. Yeah, well, firstly, Andrew and Clay, thank you so much. I, this has been a, a really interesting a really interesting chat. I, I, I honestly could do this stuff for hours, which makes me a bit strange, I know, but it's been, it's been wonderful. Um, yeah, so International Intrigue is, is a newsletter that my, my co-founder and I write every week. Uh, we do, at the moment, we're covering two kind of main stories. They're sort of not mainstream, but, you know, big enough. Uh, and we write about we six to 800 words, just kind of breaking them down, bit of context, bit of history, bit of analysis, kind of like a cheat sheet for people who don't live and breathe this stuff. Um, and we do it in a very fun and irreverent way. Plenty of jokes, plenty of memes, because we're sort of very committed to this idea that geopolitics and diplomacy and foreign policy doesn't need to be mindlessly boring and an academic. Um, and excitingly, we're, we're spending the summer building another product, which is going to be a daily product. Um, and it's going to be a curation sort of product, but in the same voice, which is aimed at you know, the next generation of people who need to know about this stuff and The Economist doesn't resonate with them because it's uh, a wonderful publication, but um, pretty dry. So stay tuned for that. And you can find us what we're doing now at internationalintrigue.io. Um, if you just put that into, into Google, you'll, you'll see us. Um, come and subscribe. That would be fantastic. And you guys can find them on Twitter at intintrigue. Uh, and John's Twitter is at John nonsense which is john's nonsense john's plural, nonsense it's yes. just sort of like a sum up of generally how i conduct myself you know <laughs> beautiful that sounds like a great follow <laughs> all right so all of those great links will be in the description below really looking forward to that curated product we'll you can put our emails on on the list now so we can get that uh awesome the first, two on there early. The first two subscribers on there um and yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what's new with International Intrigue and, you know, hope to have you back on the show at some point in the future. Anytime. I'd be delighted to. Thanks so much, guys. All right. And this was the 17th episode of the Global Guessing Mostly Weekly podcast. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>